This is Paul McGann, the eighth doctor. You're listening to Gallifrey Public Radio. Go and throw yourself under a bus. I didn't mean to say that. He told me to say that. This is Gallifrey Public Radio, a weekly podcast dedicated to positive enjoyment of Doctor Who. We travel through classic and new episodes, explore the extended universe, and play a few games from time to time. We do discuss news, content that has been officially released, and the occasional interesting rumor, but we'll warn you before anything considered spoilers comes up. Welcome to episode 508 of Gallifrey Public Radio, where the fandom had no idea what to expect from this ride, but even in our wildest dreams, we didn't think we'd be screaming quite this much. I'm Kier. I'm Jay. And I'm Julie. This week, familiar faces return, unresolved plot lines are addressed, and emotions on both sides of the screen are put through the ringer in The Star Beast. We don't know how or why, but the skinny suit wearing doctor is back and has been taken by the TARDIS to, hey, present-day London, within yards of one Donna Noble and her daughter with Sean Temple, Rose. There's a downed alien ship as well, no coincidence to the doctor there, and Rose herself is the first to meet the Meep, who is being actively pursued by the insect-like Rarth warriors. The doctor scrambles to remain anonymous for reasons we all know too well, while protecting Donna and her family, whilst also figuring out why all is not as it seems with these two extraterrestrial visiting species. Oh, I will escape and have my revenge. So you beware, Doctor, because there's one more thing. Which is? A creature with two hearts is such a rare thing. Just wait till I tell boss. Cryptic. I hate that. I think it's only fair off the top, after this long delay and waiting for new content, that without giving too much away uh, at the at the outset of this conversation, what our first reactions and emotion, <laughs> present emotional states are after watching at least a couple times. After four viewings, I am I'm just as happy as I was sitting down and seeing the titles roll for the first time. It was a blast. It was so much fun. The The new intro looks amazing. Such a, a happy opening with like kind of upbeat folksy music. And it just like it it definitely sets you in the mood. The tone that the show began with, I think, let us know that we were in for something that was going to be both serious, deal with some um, pretty good solid topics, and leave us with tears drenching everything, but still very excited and happy that we have what we got. I watched for a lot of reactions from people as they were starting to trickle down on social media. Um, we were watching it as as it dropped, 
fascinating, you know, that Disney Plus, uh, at least here, Jay, you can you can attest to the central states mm-hmm. here on the East Coast. It dropped exactly in sync with the with the UK broadcast time mm-hmm. overseas. So we had it, you know, early afternoon. And then for folks that uh, that started to see it a little bit later in the day or further on in the weekend or are still starting to get to it now, I'm still seeing the feed getting populated with people that are sort of doing a I'm starting it now kind of thing and then are threading the conversation under that to say I'm 30 minutes in I'm <laughs> and the emotions get larger and larger. But by and large, a lot of them, as you were saying, Julie, like within the first 10 minutes are saying this is tonally and uh, and all of the feel of it is exactly what I wanted right now. This is my... You know, this is my my first present for the holiday season, so to speak. It's the comfort food that we haven't had in so long from the TV show that we love. Yeah. The as far as emotional states, I I will say, for lack of a better adjective, that this was a difficult one to watch, but not because it was particularly distressing or upsetting or dark or or anything of that sort. And it wasn't difficult to watch because it wasn't enjoyable, because as you can tell, it obviously was as far as our estimation. But it was difficult because of all of the journeys that it takes you through over the course of that just under an hour. So it's it's exhausting. Then maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's a better term for it. It's an exhausting episode. So let's let's take a moment and talk about the the execution of the actual story beats kind of the like what did we think of the 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 kind of setup that went into everything that was a worry we we wanted to know how the doctor was going to handle sort of staying in the periphery of donna for obvious reasons mm-hmm. right we knew that the, the there's no reason why they would be in the story together unless they're going to come face to face we knew from some of the tre- teasers and trailers that this was going to occur but how was it going to be handled? And I think it was, I like the, the, the duality of, of his tension and worry and concern. And she's just Donna. Mm-hmm. She's just Donna. <laughs> the, the very first moment where you're, you didn't know where they were going to meet, but it had to be early on. So the, the reveal of the boxes coming down <laughs> and then just putting them right back up and then the immediacy of her just not being able to comprehend looking the other way just (laughs) (laughs) it it puts the tone for her growth pattern to just be this epic arc which i loved so much and i think that to me I, i think that's the first minute that i or the first second that i laughed was just like oh they they can be safely here and we're going to get something i was a little worried from the previews, we were going to see the mom show up earlier, where that was their first minute of introduction. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad that that wasn't it, that we got a little off-the-cuff initial interaction between them. I, I think it did a great job of you know, of bringing the characters together, being like something is causing them to, to have to interact. Like they're you – know, right off the bat, you have that introduction. And then you go immediately into the – you know, a lot of the story beats with units showing up with the spaceship crashing, uh, you know, kind of introducing everyone that's going to like all the uh, all the human characters that are going to be part of everything. Mm-hmm. And then then we find out about the the meep 
and the the Rarth warriors who are are pursuing the Meep. And that that whole uh, initial conflict kind of starts to build with the uh, you know like learning all the information from the Meep, getting it uh, relayed to the uh, to Rose, and then eventually to Donna. Uh, like I, I thought this was a great setup to kind of bring everything together, and then obviously you have the the way that the rest of the story plays out as well. I, I felt like it was compelling through the whole thing with little bread cl- breadcrumbs for people that didn't know what was going on. So I, I thought it was a fantastic, um, a, a fantastic story built the way it was. It's a familiar or, or comfortable formula that I can understand now why Rachel Talley was saying that this had in many senses, a classic story feel to it as far as how we we get our uh, we get our players in place. We have something that looks to be um, the the current dilemma. Something upstages it mm-hmm. and reveals itself to be the more immediate problem. Um, but the solution to one, or at least the the journey towards the resolution of the one, guides us to the advancement of the other. So A and B stories work very well in in tandem that way. And then that gives us the flexibility to do this kind of tilt, this constant tilt between the nostalgia uh, and the drama of it, right? You know, because we could live in watching, you know, these two, you know, bicker or, <laughs> or you know, kind of, you know, riff off each other all day long and have no story. <laughs> that that would satisfy many, a large percentage <laughs> of the viewers if it was just the Tenet and Tate just riffing for 58 minutes. I mean, I'd pay extra to have that at the end of the episode, just kind of stick in what we were dealing with without. Right. Yeah. I'm good with it. So, yeah, I mean, it just, it sets the, it sets, um, I don't want to call it a tropey or a, a or a, a too overly formulaic foundation for, uh, for the story to progress, but it's something that for everybody that was concerned as to whether or not, are they going to be able to recapture the magic? Hell yeah, I can recapture the magic. Look <laughs> at the two of them. So, mm-hmm. and I think too, I know that you had mentioned in a previous cast about the Meep being not what it seemed, mm. and potentially, I think we knew that the the Meep was the bad guy, even though it's soft and cuddly in the beginning. And I think for me, and part of the reason why I'm so against spoilers is the the way that that played out, and the revelations as we watched and went through where the first minute the wrath wraith worth warriors yeah. uh <laughs> warriors see the boy in the uh alleyway and they say stop we're not looking for this one mm-hmm. the meep is who we're after and then seeing them fighting in the street with the guns but it's clearly stun weapons there's no damage from what they're shooting and mm-hmm. It, you saw that sort of slowly play out with whatever sound barrier thing was going on from the doctor that got built and then the cars, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I'm so glad that I had forgotten that piece of knowledge because it was one of those I walked the path that the story was taking me on and I got to see it and experience it in real time as I was like, Some, something's not right. Like this is okay, we're saving this thing, but also something's not right. And then the flip of 
the the minute the doctor puts on the wig and says court is in session i was like oh 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 this there's this is the thing that's going to happen oh right this thing's evil and then that that turn just that reveal was just epic and i loved it so much I, and yeah go ahead I, I, the i knew like i remembered i knew i knew what what was likely going to happen and even knowing that going in being like all right this thing's gonna and i'm watching everyone in the room with me seeing if they're gonna pick up on it or not but by the time that they got there like enough had happened and enough explanation had come out that i'm like are are they going a different route? Like, is the meep actually going to be a peaceful? And it, so it's like when it finally did twist, it was it was a relief to me. Like, oh, okay, thank God. Like, <laughs> yeah, stuck to the story. You still got the villain that you wanted and you deserved, <laughs> but the getting there, you were. Oh well, don't take their fur. Look at those <laughs> eyes. I believe that this creature is soft, mm -hmm. cuddly, and will do no wrong. Mm -hmm. I, I will say that one thing I like: the, this whole episode felt pretty lighthearted, and the the overall stakes felt pretty low. <laughs> For what it was like, I mean, we know that London's not going to be destroyed. We know the doctor's going to find like there's never any sincere like, oh, my God, something may terrible may happen here. So it, it felt very low stakes for the most of it, which allowed the emotional beats and the personal stakes with Donna and Rose to really hit that much harder. I can see that. I can I can see that it's a it's a matter of the both of the of the storylines that you're trying to track had sufficient room. It, it didn't feel like it was too hectic at any point or that one was necessarily upstaging the other. I think the fact that we were able to get a lot of the concern and uh, an issue with uh, the doctor and Donna established uh, in Act One to get the anchor early on with Donna f foreshadowing the the statements about Donna Noble descending <laughs> and the lengths that a mother will go to to protect her own. Given that. And and given all of the the room that that earned or or that it was entitled within the first what twelve minutes of the story I think mm -hmm. when they first get back to to their flat mm -hmm. allows you then to sit back and say okay you make statements like that we're gonna see that challenged I'm here to see that challenged you know um, yeah so that even though. You know, we kind of dance around with the Meep and the and the Wrath Warriors for a little bit, and then we get that you know, the, okay, that that great car park sequence with the with the courtroom uh, reenactment and all. Um, which, by the way, you kind of love the Wrath Warriors when you finally get to talk to them, and they're mm -hmm. just so pleasant, which oh, yeah. <laughs> is so <lovely>. nice. <laughs> It's just like Simon and Nigel. Just <laughs> <laughs> and they did a great job, too, of like any time it was kind of a one on one or like just the the creatures before that they're shot from a low angle. They look tall and imposing and menacing, and it's usually darkly lit. And then mm -hmm. as soon as they start speaking, the camera comes up to eye level or higher and it's more brightly lit and they don't seem as imposed and they did a great job of really kind of cementing that feel until the time where the the reveal needed to happen yeah i think a lot of this rachel and and the mm -hmm. director of photography so it's it's a yeah. matter of kind of recognizing that there was so much of that 
really careful selection of what was getting metered out visually uh, and and uh, in in auditory sense, you know, sentences that were getting clipped or or getting you know, certain perspectives on lines being delivered as they were you know drifting out of frame and things. So just really really nicely done in that regard. Mm-hmm. But uh, I I don't know. I, I think the the danger level you were talking about, Jay, about it not seeming like kind of high stakes. By the time you get to the point where that engine is firing up and tearing the streets of London apart, mm-hmm. that felt but, pretty large scale. Right. I think a lot of that kudos to the to the effects department because between the opening sequence, which is gorgeous right now, mm-hmm. um, you didn't and, put enough H's in the beginning of that. Gorgeous. <laughs> um, uh, and and incidental effects like the you know, the the sweeping clouds of the of the solar psychosis and, mm-hmm. and psychotropics kind of drifting around and that sort of thing, it's just th- those little aspects. It's just, it was very very polished and, and I think it sold really well. I didn't quite understand how it reversed so cleanly, but I don't really care at this point. So there's no more cars on any of those streets, yeah. but the streets are back the- beautifully. And I mean to to your point on the VFX, like the Meep looked amazing. I, I couldn't tell where the practical effect ended and the CGI began. I don't know how much of that was puppetry and how much was mm. like it. It looked so good and I didn't care. It took me like my third viewing before I was like, you know, this is really freaking awesome. Like I just, yeah. it just it blended so seamlessly before that that I didn't even think about it. I know within about 24 hours, we got a little behind the scenes stuff with uh with Russell uh, taking us through the Rarth Warriors and the mask and, and mm. some of the, the armature and stuff. I don't think they've done that yet for the Meep. No. It's just real. It's just, That's yeah. a creature that, yeah, you could, mm-hmm. you could go, yeah. I <laughs> could believe have it. one as a pet. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you believe that the eye poke is a real thing. Like, <laughs> you would. <laughs> I, love how she, I love how she went straight for the eye. Like it just it, no yeah. no hesitation. I'm just gonna poke this thing in the eye and see what happens. Yep, <laughs> very Donna. Uh, speaking of that that whole you know the, the toy sequence, it's sort of the ET moment, you know, mm-hmm. among all of the the stuffed animals in the in the closet. There, did anybody else pick up on the identity of Rose's creations prior? No, because nope they they very carefully selected stuff that wasn't revealed at the end. So all of the toys mm, she had they- before that were not the ones that they point out at the end, like the Dalek or the Cyberman, That's things true. like that. But I remember seeing one that looked like the Beast. Yes. Early on. But the Beast was not Donna. Right. right. <laughs> and the the one with the big eye, I think, was one that they did highlight at the end, but not one of the very first and not the most recognizable. So I think that was Maybe, very yeah. cleverly. Yeah. And <laughs> you pulled out its tummy. <laughs> Yeah. Which just, you knew that they were important and something to pay attention to, but you didn't know why until the end, which I think that's one of those things that makes you want to go back and watch again, which hence the three, four times going Mm -hmm. through, Mm -hmm. uh, which some of that comes through in a lot of the themes that we saw throughout the show. So are there any that were more uh, hard-hitting, close to home for you? And how did the themes match up with the tone of the music and the, the stage and how it was set? There, there were a couple of things that stood out to me. Um, the first thing was the, the overarching theme of kind of being protective. You have the Rarth warriors that we find out are 
watching out for everyone. They're trying to protect everyone. They're using stun guns. They're making sure no one gets harmed that, that shouldn't be, you know, like that kind of thing. And then you have the doctor, Sylvia, even Sean at times being very protective of Donna. Even when uh, Donna is like, I'm so stupid. Sean immediately jumps in. He's like, no, you're not. Like they're, they're all being very careful with her. And then further, you have Donna who is ready to burn down the world to protect her daughter. And it's just everyone looking out for others was kind of a, a, a constant theme throughout this thing that just really resonated with me. I think to add to that, too, is the doctor being so careful and cautious with Donna as well. Mm-hmm. And they let so the 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 script allowed for the doctor to admit love and feelings and genuine friendship <laughs> and I care for Donna mm-hmm. and it's especially after we've been watching so much classic it's so refreshing to just see the, the doctor just oh i just love her oh do i say those things now which you don't get that from the doctor often that was one thing that kind of came up too in in my discussion with some people was like 14 is very much just the 10th doctor with new memories because he immediately refers to Donna as his best friend. We're we're skipping over Yaz. We're skipping over Amy or Missy. And we're just like, no, Donna's my best friend. So clearly this is the 10th Doctor again. Resurgent, yeah. Yeah. I had heard some people that were a little taken aback um, in retrospect. They were enjoying the, the episode at, at face value for everything it was worth while viewing. But then when they were thinking about it later, they were thinking, boy – the doctor took a lot of punches through this. They were just getting slagged up, down, and sideways through the entire story. And they felt like that, It, looking at it in the rearview mirror, felt a little off balance. Did anybody else feel that way? Or does, do, do you see... Do you mean like how the doctor doesn't charge into the situation at first and kind of is sitting like, I don't know who I am. No, this is more about the, any interaction with the doctor, whether it was coming from Sylvia or Donna or others, they were constantly getting dressed down. They were just the, I mean, literally got slapped in the face. (laughs) Yeah. There's yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of, they, they became sort of the, the whipping post for a little while. I I don't think it, I think for 15 years, if we're talking themes of protection, Sylvia has been dealing with, her daughter, who has felt different as a person, because parts of what made her so smart and great and were really brought out by when she was with the doctor 15 years ago, they've been protecting her from all of that. Mm -hmm. And you can tell in the way that they interacted in the kitchen at the very beginning when she's at the house. And any mention of the alien or the spaceship or this or that, immediately the mom turns and says, oh, I I'm, I'm saw so-and-so the other day or you know, yeah. this other thing, which mm-hmm. when well, you're the mom having to be that constant nag of, don't think about that. Let's th- talk about other stuff. You mm-hmm. know that weighs on you because you're right. constantly not allowing natural flow of conversation and being so protective. So for all of a sudden the doctor to show up. Yeah. I, well, I think you get to drop some punches. And and then like the, the fact that it was slowly or not so slowly ramping up where, you know, Rose comes in, it's like, Oh, there was a spaceship and, and Sylvia had to be like, no, there's no such thing as spaceships. And then in walks this alien and she is trying desperately to like, no, 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 don't look at the thing grabbing onto your leg. It doesn't actually exist. Trying desperately to control the situation. 
And then she hears the knock and turns and sees the face of the person that has done all this to her for 15 years. Like it makes sense that she is going to just unload on him. So I, that was a sitcom level yeah. of com- compounding complications uh, w- with her at the center of it. <laughs> and then brought to a close brilliantly with Sean showing up, taking everything in, taking a beat and just saying, well, something smells good. Like, I mean, just completely <laughs> yeah. diffusing the situation instantly. And, and and that they've all been protecting Donna. Mm-hmm. So Wolf stopped talking about aliens at all. Mm-hmm. And Sean has been in on the whole thing the whole time as well, just trying to make everything normal. And these are my these are my girls and that's all I need in my life. <laughs> and that's fine. Uh, mm-hmm. didn't, don't even care that all the money's gone. <laughs> so another thing that I wanted to to talk about uh, and we knew going into this that we were going to have Yasmin Finney cast as Rose. We didn't know what that meant for the story. You know, we we guessed that the name of Rose probably came you – know, it, it probably played some importance. But I didn't realize that the character herself was going to be trans. And that first moment when they're walking down the street and you hear the boys calling her Jason – And that was included intentionally by Russell. He wanted to make sure that this character was dead named because he recognized this is something trans people have to go through. And we need to, you know, you need to be able to recognize that. And then, you know, having Sylvia talking about it and being like, you know, misgendering accidentally or, you know, however it played out was that that was where the light bulb came on for other people. Like, I didn't realize that was a thing. And then. It really did play a much larger part in the story than I thought it was going to. And I think it makes it okay that Donna, Sylvie, they, you just it, take it in stride. And yeah, it's hard for me too. I, mm. I make mistakes and, and we just go on. And mm. yes, she's gorgeous. And <laughs> yeah. it, that is who she is. And that's great. And I think allowing that to be central to the story part of the resolution and mm-hmm. how the entirety of the two of them are saved and again uh, tears were oh, wept yeah. and left all over <laughs> everywhere i think i i said i was just a faucet and my eyes were leaking and i didn't know i had that much liquid in them uh, just the whole time <laughs> i didn't stop and every time i see donna being protective about rose the room gets very dusty every time <laughs> You know, because I've having seeing a mother hold that much affection and acceptance for their daughter going through that is not a universal constant. And it just serves to highlight that much more when it's not there. It's a theme. It it is probably the most established aspect of this episode's theme of identity. Mm-hmm. So if we have protection as a predominant theme, then the concept of identity or the seeking of that identity or the reveal of identity or anything around that uh, plays with every intercharacter exchange that we have. You know, it's, it's what is the true identity of the meat? What is the doctor's identity in this thing and why this face? Mm-hmm. Who is the doctor's identity to Donna and how are we going to resolve what we know is this potentially catastrophic reveal? 
how is Rose dealing with identity from the point where oh, she is confiding with this alien that has been hiding out in her shed and is saying things like, sometimes I feel like a monster too because I don't know if I belong. I don't feel mm-hmm. like I belong anywhere. This is all part and parcel of of a of a story that is trying to get us the collective us the the viewing audience on a larger scale to not just ask questions because the only way that you can learn is by questioning and hoping that someone is going to be answering but also the whole idea of just trying to be more dialed in to what is outside of your own immediate space and start to to see that there are things that you may be missing because you're being myopic Mm-hmm. You know, unless you start to pull the camera back and see, you know, where the Rarth warriors are standing with regard to the Meep and the and the unit soldiers that are having the gun down the street, you may not catch the fact that, I mean, Julie was starting to notice it during that exchange. She's like, "There's there's no collateral damage going on here during this mm-hmm. this gunfight. What's what's going on at the moment?" And then she revises that and says, "Oh wait, no, those are bullets from that side." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That side's not doing any damage. So it's a matter of pulling the view back and then sort of seeing where that identity truly lies. And having that be such a critical aspect of the resolution is not, as I have seen, <laughs> made the mistake of reading comments, as of seeing people saying that they're just trying to to shoehorn that in to make it part of the story. It is the story. Right. It is the 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 fact that Donna has a child is the solution to the metacrisis mm-hmm. condition. The yeah. the the fact that Rose is non-binary is the is the exact counterpoint to the uh, the the original binary thinking of black or white yes or no there's nothing in between we have to do it this way or everything goes to hell that's not that's not the end of the list mm-hmm. so i think that's a brilliant bit of of writing craft to make that something that functions on so many different levels without detracting from anything else happening within the story structure yeah agreed and the fact that it was addressed throughout in multiple different ways. So you get the introduction, as Jay said at the beginning, some of the struggles. How do we share that knowledge without just pointing it out and saying, oh, this is the way it is. Like this, It was a very um, real way of sharing that knowledge. And also highlighting, so you assume that the Meep is a he. Why? you're you're just assuming that so Mm -hmm. how about let's take a step back in every instance and not just dealing with high level but uh, and then also with i think uh we said the psychic paper saying oh catch up (laughs) kind of (laughs) multiple different instances of uh in some comedic and some just like very matter of factly like well okay so how would how does the meep want to be referred to. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a way to allow anyone who's open-minded or can accept that we should zoom out a little bit and think of things and other people put ourselves in their shoes. 
how can we ask those questions and do it kindly and nicely? And I think this showed us a little bit of that. Right. For those still trying to understand why it was that we are seeing all of a sudden representation of our transgender community of uh of uh we've got the the scientific advisor uh Shirley Ann Bingham um in a wheelchair you know what if if this seems unusual to you if this seems like something like why is this all here right now why do we have to feel like we're running down a list because they haven't been there <laughs> and they are watching the program and they mm-hmm. are part of the society right. that is being represented by those on screen science fiction doesn't mean that it's a fictional reality where these people don't freaking exist. So mm-hmm. if that feels unusual to you, then you've been watching programs where the blinders have been structurally placed for your convenience and comfort. And this is about representing the audience. There's more than than just you know, cis, uh, you know, cishet white guys out there. It's I mean, how many people are we going to see in wheelchairs rolling up to to galley with with battle wheelchairs now? You know, like yeah. how many? Oh, that that brings up a really interesting point. I don't know if you got a chance to watch the um, the the quick little piece that they did uh, for children in need. The, the yes, it's like been happening. <laughs> so you've got Davros being represented. You've got this origin of the Dalek thing. It was a very funny little bit. It was it was great. You know, TARDIS crashes in, breaks the original prototype of the Dalek, and they find something to put the arm back on. And mm-hmm. The guy who looks around and just finds a plunger and goes, oh, that'll work. <laughs> but a Davros character is there who is fully upright, Mobile, unscarred, yeah. not wheelchair-bound. They talk to Russell afterwards about this, and he said, why is it that anybody who is uh, wheelchair-bound or disfigured is immediately uh, categorized as a potential villain. You know, you're going to have mm-hmm. another, you know, another Bond villain there who, you know, rolls up in a in a platinum wheelchair with a cat in their lap. <laughs> so I have all the respect in the world for the efforts that are being taken to pull down a lot of the the structural expectations that we have for character archetypes and tropes and on the inverse the effort that is being made to put a better representation of true societal uh composition on screen in all capacities whether they are the fact that you had a unit commander uh who is uh wearing uh, their uh their headdress that is that is part of their culture and and faith mm-hmm. And it's all those little things where it's like, it's going to feel unusual to some until it feels comfortable to everyone. It and has the, to get there. And they, they really did a great job of incorporating things without it being you know, necessarily a uh, a character-defining trait. I mean, with, with Shirley, like it, it didn't define her character – that she was in a wheelchair, but it wasn't ignored either. You know, the fact that like she rolls in at one point and the, the soldier's like, oh crap, the stairs. I'm, and she's like, no, it's fine. Go. You know, it's like, this is stuff that people in wheelchairs are going to have to encounter every day. And it doesn't mean that that is their only defining characteristic. The fact that she was an entire character. And I absolutely loved the, the, uh, 
the interplay between her and the doctor, the, the way that there's characters interacted was so good, mm-hmm. but it's like, <laughs> it it's not just, Oh, we have somebody in a wheelchair tick. It is the fact that they are a person. Mm-hmm. The fact that it is, it feels like a genuine character is what's yeah. important. I am hoping that we see her again. Oh yeah. I'm, I, I think I, she's I'm, the next Osgood. I, <laughs> And you've said that, and I, I hope that's true. I mean, she's, what, she number 53, 56, something like yeah. that? Oh, really? <laughs> Scientific advisor. Yeah. Like, I, I know. I've read this I, I used to be number one, <laughs> so true. I don't that's know, right? <laughs> right? We'll see. <laughs> but I think, uh, to your point, Jay, of, of she she's a fully realized, she's been well-established now. Mm. She's got a persona and uh, she doesn't take any crap from the doctor, which I love because oh. you need you need to be that when you are <laughs> mm-hmm. any level of uh, control in unit. And then I think to the reveal at the end of the new TARDIS interior and getting to see that we now have ramps and mm-hmm. that's more accessible for a lot of different reasons. But maybe that's one of them is she would be able to join us in the TARDIS. And that, that's a hope yeah. I have. Oh, yeah. Me too. So mention of the new TARDIS interior, which for a moment, uh, we will just uh, give you all a nice collective GPR sound bath as we all react to the appearance of the new TARDIS. <laughs> oh my God, it's so <laughs> It's so elegant. Mm-hmm. You know, it has little aspects that you could see, oh, you know, the the credit to this, the the tip of the hat to that, but it is it is entirely its own. And it just feels so spacious. Well, it is spacious. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it uses huge. probably every every outer <laughs> panel possible of that drum like uh, mm-hmm. soundstage that they use for the TARDIS interior. You get a full six foot plus whatever human doctor man uh, <laughs> sprinting across in a couple of bounds. That tells you how tall or yeah. how wide <laughs> that yeah. place yep. is. That it is. <laughs> I've. I've definitely heard some people that are not enamored with it. Um, really? Well, like, and honestly, this is something I said when it first popped on screen too. I was like, it looks kind of like an Apple store. <laughs> like it, that very kind of stark white, very minimalistic kind of clean appearance. Um, you know, we've got a friend that's uh, has only watched New Who. He's, you know, it, working his way through stuff. And he was like, it's just – it's way too clean. The TARDIS is supposed to be grungy and falling apart and things like that. And I'm like, classically, no. It, it, it's not, it didn't yeah. used like, to go be. Go back that and look way. at many of the classic doctors, and it is yeah. that clean yeah. kind of appearance. So it's from a from a design perspective, the aspect, the the fact that they kept it uh, relatively monochromatic, mm-hmm. and having to do with the fact that it's not only uh, cylindrical, but it's actually almost hemispherical. Spherical, yeah. Um, provides for, and Julie and I were talking about this before, the lighting. The mm-hmm. fact that the roundels are now part of the accent lighting and provide a lot of the tonal light that can shift infinitely. I mean, you have mm-hmm. any combination uh, of hues and brightnesses uh, and, and contrast levels by putting harsher, colder lights on one side. You can cast shadows that really catch people in profile, and you can do anything you want with that. So... It's a it's a canvas now mm-hmm. from an artistic yeah. perspective. So while it may look on that first walk in like it's very clinical and very antiseptic, the moment they turn the lights on, it's different. and it starts yeah. going through this phenomenal pattern. You're like, oh, okay, the, 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 well, it's 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 endless now. It, it's it's infinite as far as what we could do. 
And the TARDIS has its own personality again. (laughs) Right. Not just there's contraptions and things in the center console and there's stuff around the outside, Mm -hmm. but the TARDIS can emote now. And we see that at the very end with fire and flames. However, (laughs) I think once we are uh, cured of that (laughs) uh, mishap of tea, that we will be Uh, actually coffee. coffee. I think it was coffee. I I retract. Yeah. So (laughs) I think that the lights will allow for more of that interaction with the TARDIS and how the TARDIS is feeling with the characters that are playing inside. Someone was asking whether or not this is going to be Shooty's interior, and I think for all intents and purposes, we're under the under the belief that it will be, mm-hmm. because that was me. Yeah, <laughs> um, because this is something, and, and I'm thinking about this. We also know that the Fifteenth Doctor is not going to have a fixed costume; it's going to change right. with essentially every episode, right? Which so, is fantastic because you get to see him in so many different outfits precisely yeah and and it was one of those things like okay you might have a kind of a look you might have a thing but do you really have to wear the same sweater vest every day you mean they're hundreds of years they're actually a person that wears clothes (laughs) exactly right not my doctor i think the biggest (laughs) the biggest thing was that the companions often changed and so it's just the doctor with a suit (laughs) like a closet full of the same outfit or are we not bathing what's going on right time lords don't have uh sweat glands so they they don't don't, sweat the same as humans they can shut off their uh, respiratory and perspiratory (laughs) systems at will (laughs) i'm just thinking if if that's a matter of if that's going to be uh, a dynamic than having that sort of with the interior. I wouldn't be surprised if you see the TARDIS kind of saying, oh, well, we're doing blue today? Okay, I'll do blue. <laughs> oh, we're going a more uh, orange. We're going with some warmer tones. Oh, yeah, I can go with warmer tones. And and they, they kind of riff and with that's each other. where that's where I am hoping that there is a little bit more of that direct interaction with the TARDIS and the Doctor or companions or... I don't know for sure, but I can just see the emotional range where mm-hmm. something exciting is happening and we get brighter lights and then it gets darker and red and we're angry because something goes wrong or mm-hmm. the doctor's in danger. Or yeah. even like, you know, certain lights going on at different times, almost like, you know, the TARDIS being able to communicate, you know, it's, yeah, there's precisely. The, mm-hmm. it's exciting. Um, so that, uh, let me sort of dovetail that into a conversation about that and other aspects that this now brings into canon. You know, we've got new capabilities of the Sonic. Mm-hmm. I understand that that is a little bit divisive. Anytime you add something new to the Sonic, it's it's pun it's intended an issue. divisive. It is. It, div- <laughs> well, I mean, it, <laughs> nice. It looks like I, I went back and I watched a couple times, and it seems like the only things we actually see are the the Doctor is able to to draw a shape in the air. Mm-hmm. And then use a setting to determine what that square does, because like the first time he he does it and it turns it into an interactive display. The second time, like and you see him draw it and then actively set the thing before the hex pattern goes across and turns it into some kind of physical barrier. So it's it, it'll be interesting to see if they do other things with that moving forward. But mm-hmm. it, it, yeah. it's really kind of exciting. <laughs> Sound barriers. Totally get it. The heads-up display thing. I was a little. I don't really know how we're we're trying to hand wavy him this thing. I'm 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 okay with it. It was really pretty, and it mm. gave David a chance to put his smarty specs back on. Which <laughs> the moment that happens, you know, hotness factor goes up by you know tenfold and all. But 
but it's a matter of, um, you know, maybe there is some plausibility. And we were already starting to move towards that because the display tactics that were being used for 13 and then even backing up a little bit towards the the tail end of Capaldi's run, we were starting to say, all right, well, our, our viewing audience has fancier display things on the dash of their uh, their Volkswagen. So I think we should probably be able to incorporate something a little better here with a with this masterful tool. I like this for visibility of what's going through the doctor's head. What we're, We are no longer having to audibly explain to a companion all of the things we are thinking and looking mm-hmm. at and what we are analyzing. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it keeps the doctor from having to just stare at the side of the sco- sonic like he's reading something. <laughs> correct. And it. I like having it be something that is... Uh, a little bit more technologically advanced than having maybe even pushing a button on the Sonic and having it project up like that Mm -hmm. because it allows for some of that let's still have props and visual cues or interesting facial expressions of either thinking or reacting to what we're seeing from the doctor instead of just like holding my hand here and the other hand is wavy doing what i don't know so Mm. draw something make it there be reading reviewing Mm. i feel like it's it's a more it's show don't tell way it's show don't tell and and i always am going to vote for that Mm. even if it is a new introduction of something that some i have also seen people who are saying that it's too much for the for the screwdriver like you don't know it's metal now have you not paid attention to what what it's done before now. Like, Matt Smith yeah. held up a 10-ton stone slab. I mean, how's that work? Yeah. And it's not wood. It's air. So it's fine. And right. also being able to lift the visor. Like, mm-hmm. we've got some electromagnetism there, too. So there's... Sure, sure. <laughs> I do like the fact that he, uh, he did explain if it's if it's good at one thing, it's very, very good at, at uh, poking around with uh, Resonating with concrete. concrete. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Uh, do, do, but, uh, Sonic. It's not it's not concrete, it's mortar. <laughs> the fact yeah. that like he sat there for a moment and was like, this is a sonic screwdriver. For anyone joining the show right now, this is a sonic screwdriver. Right. To, to that end, though, do we feel like we got um, th- that you wanted a little bit of an explanation as to why the Sonic had changed? No, okay. I didn't. I, I was. It, it's it's changed so many times. It's like, oh, sweet new Sonic. All right, I like it. Okay, I just felt I like think I, I know on some of the most recent changes they made more of a deal out yeah. of the changing. Either the TARDIS provided it, or the Doctor forged it, or you know whatever the case may be. So. I took that to be similar to how um, the rest of the outfit and the persona is back to something we are unsure of. It's just this doctor fell into that moment. And I don't know if the reveal will explain more of that as we get episodes two and three. Mm. But I'm thinking there is a reason why, obviously, and that hopefully some of that will sort of tell us why we were so different about this iteration and mm. where Jody had to completely rebuild. But also I think, I mean, we've seen a lot of times where the doctor has to kind of rebuild or restructure it because Jody's was broken before she got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in this case it wasn't, it was already functioning. So now it's just this doctor's functioning. Right. Canonically, then we also now have uh, a Donna Noble who is safe. Yeah. So yes. that well, 
really, is, really ru- well. <laughs> that, that is uh, air safe, s- safely <laughs> in knowledge of the doctor once again. Right. Um, Correct. Which means that we we get to face at some point yet another departure. Um, won't hurt quite the same way. Note I didn't say as much. Won't hurt in quite the same way. Um, but that also uh, we've got more individuals who are now brought into the understanding, uh, more earthlings uh, that are brought into the understanding of what was uh, what was faced uh, and, the, and the true uh, importance of, of Donna uh, at, the, at the center of all of this. So that's... I just hope that we are given some room to appreciate that. And I know they s- mentioned, oh, we'll go visit Wilf. And I, I know it's a... It's a thing that we can't do in, on screen, but I hope that that gets uh, alluded to, that they get to do it. The thing that I picked up on when th- the the doctor very quickly was like, hey, what do you say? One last trip kind of thing. And Donna shut him down. She was like, I would love to, but I can't. And so it's Donna has already made the choice that she is not going to travel with the doctor. So it's not going to be a matter of you know, finding some way for her to exit. Like the exit has already begun basically. Mm-hmm. So I'm not as worried about her exit this time, <sighs> assuming that it is peaceful. <laughs> yeah. It's she's had, now that she has had all of that memory restored to her, mm-hmm. she gets to, she gets to process that in tandem with a life separate from the doctor that she has thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah. So and, she, and she's already, you know, with all the knowledge, she already made the choice. She's like, no, I have my family. I have my daughter. This is stuff is more important to me than traveling in the TARDIS. So. Yeah. We just got to get them back there now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because- <laughs> so let's let's talk for a moment about the the cast of this episode, because we've got the returning characters or the returning actors, David Tennant, Catherine Tate, Jacqueline King. As, as Sylvia, I mean, they all fell immediately back into their roles and it was perfect. You had uh, Carl Collins coming back as Sean Temple, who I don't think had any speaking lines, was just like you saw him at the end with, with Donna's wedding, but that was pretty much it. But like here you actually get to see him as a character and I I loved his performance. It was so great. Yeah. I, I'm. I almost wish we got to know Sean better. Exactly, because <laughs> yeah. he's such a really nice guy. Um, you know, obviously we had Yasmin Finney as Rose, uh, just absolutely killing it. I, I thought that she was wonderful in this one. Yeah, uh, like I said, I think the that sequence with the meep in the shed mm-hmm. uh, at the outset really, uh, really sold to me. You know why so many people were really loving her from Heartbreakers. Mm. Um, and just the ability to be able to to kind of come in and be um, sort of the innocent ingenue to, to to certain aspects of the of the of the story overall, but really having a lot of substance and, and gravity to to delivery of certain sequences when sort of speaking back with uh, with her parents and and kind of taking in and then and obviously being able to handle the technical mumbo jumbo um, when she's infused with a medical. Mm-hmm. I mean, she she's spewing jargon like it like like anybody else could for for someone to be able to share the screen with 
massive personalities like David Tennant and Catherine Tate and not immediately get lost speaks volumes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, we also had, uh, and I, I, I may, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but Ruth uh, Madeley as Shirley Ann Bingham. Yeah. Like, I mean, we've, we've already talked about her. She just absolutely killed it with this role. And I really, really hope that she comes back. Uh, and Agreed. the other one that, that, that really stood out to me was, um, uh, was Ronak Patani as Major Singh. I yeah. want to see him return. Like he, he was, he wasn't on screen for very long, but when he was, I was like, dude, I want to see this guy in action. I want to see him like really come forth. Maybe we can get their unit spinoff. Yeah. Right. I'd watch it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did, did anybody stand out to you guys? I was enamored with Sylvia through this. Mm-hmm. This was something where I thought her comedic timing really got a chance to shine. Um, the fact that she was really uh, set up to be the the one caught in the middle of all of this saying, can't we all just pretend this isn't happening and sit down <laughs> while, the, while the, the building is literally burning down behind her. And she's doing the Leslie Nielsen naked gun. Everything's fine here. Don't mind. I thought it was wonderful. But then there were also moments where you could tell that she understood or, or was trying as hard as she could to understand the difficulty that her daughter was going through and the pain and the struggle that her granddaughter is going through. Mm-hmm. And trying to process it, being willing to state that she's having difficulty and she has questions and she doesn't mm-hmm. quite get it. And that's a, it, it, it seems like an unusual conversation to put into a, a program like this, but it's so real. It's, it's something mm-hmm. where that's the, you, you want that to, to happen. So you would want that to, you want to make a scene feel natural, put exchanges like that in your dialogue. Yeah. And, and then the, have Donna claim her own uh, greatness and be like, right, mom? Right? Yeah. Right? It's like, oh, yes, yes, honey. Did you know about this other thing? <laughs> the, the fact that pretty much every time we have seen uh, Sylvia in the show previously, she has been antagonistic and abrasive. And it, we really didn't see a change in that character until Donna's exit when the doctor is laying out the stakes. And she is recognizing it. So now we're seeing the culmination of that. And we are seeing her actually caring for her daughter and not trying to control her anymore. Mm. And it really did kind of take a lot of those edges off and give this actress a chance to 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 really show what she's capable of. Because you're right, Kira, like her, her comedic timing in this was fantastic. And those moments of... Uh, a vulnerability when she's admitting to not knowing how to handle Rose or, you know, wanting to make sure she's doing the right thing or, or recognizing that the Donna, that Donna has called the doctor by his name, even though she never heard it. Like you can see the weight on her and it it's fantastic. And a uh, short little shout out to the kid who came running down the alleyway <laughs> saying, Hey Rose, there's aliens. And then was the first one to lay eyes on the Rorth warriors. And then also staring out his window at the flames in the street. Mm-hmm. Just one, just quick little shout out. He was great. Yeah. Give it up for <laughs> London Millhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But clearly comfortable enough with Rose that 
would run down and probably share stories or randomly visit and mm-hmm. uh, respected their relationship and who she is and all of that. Like clearly the kid who's like and wants to hang out and be be older than he is. <laughs> one of the one of the things that really stood out to me was the fact that he came searching for her, calling her out by name almost immediately after we run into the boys from school that had been dead naming her. I was like, I love this kid. I don't care who he is. I love him. <laughs> yep. So with all of this amazing show that we have, are there any theories that we still have unanswered questions for? Who is the doctor? Why is the doctor? And <laughs> anything else that we are... <laughs> no, no, I wasn't going to go there. Why is the doctor? How? <laughs> Clearly not great. On fire just a bit right now, okay? But that we... Uh, do we feel like we are closer to any answers or are we still wondering just as much as we were in the beginning? I think the the question of why this face was spoken verbatim a number of times and paraphrased even more throughout the entire episode. I think that that is going to be a point that is going to have come to come up and will likely be answered by the end of the three specials. Agreed. I think that we also got a new introduction of somebody named the boss. The boss looking for that's, that's two-hearted that. aliens, right? So either that's a throwaway line or that's a very important line. Yeah. So um, that that brought up a new question of also why are we getting another two-hearted alien here right now? I. I'm also just because I knew that it was RTD and I'm watching for those breadcrumbs. I'm wondering if the woman from Abu Dhabi who is buying all of Rose's toys <laughs> will become something at, by the end of this. Abu Dhabi. All right. I'm going to have to think through who might have been. Yeah. Either that or it's just uh, I want to just see her in the toy <laughs> episode where she's like putting in orders online for something else <laughs> right uh yeah that that's gotta be th- there's something to that there, there's yeah. something to that lady in abu dhabi who loves the, the fact that like, yeah you they think? mentioned her shipping things to dubai and then again it was like oh that woman in abu dhabi who buy you your things like i i really think that it's not just a throwaway line it very much could be but i don't think it is yeah. Is this the last of the meep? No. I think you'll get the meep one more time because the 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 threatened escape um I think would be facilitated as kind of part of the I told you so thing when the boss reveal comes about. Okay. Um it may not be much and it may just be visual, it may be kind of like we got with the Pating when we saw them in incarceration in a later episode sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. But it's um the pating still probably yeah. one of my favorites anyway that's just a meep after you know it, yeah. it tumbles in the dryer for too long you know, all the fur falls out and it shrinks a bit gets real yeah. angry i agree I, th- I think we can see them in like cameo kind of things but i don't see them coming mm-hmm. back as a antagonist anytime soon it's a lot of money to throw at margulies too <laughs> right Will we see more of Rose and Sean and Sylvia outside of just a quick return hugs and goodbye? I hope so. I really do. I would hope so, but I'm not going to put anything on it. I think part of what will make this the the sort of endearing little package that it is, is it's this nice coda to 
the Tennant and Tate era that allows us to be able to see this closure. Maybe Rose, because of the you know of her youth and the fact that she is fully aware and cognizant of everything now at a scale that mm-hmm. few others living on this planet are. I don't know how much when they let go of the of that metacrisis energy, how much of the knowledge remains. Um, maybe mm-hmm. not the know-how, but the 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 awareness mm-hmm. remains. So that kind of puts yeah. her in a better position to be um, a, a leverageable point of contact for other characters later. Uh, but I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. Sean, probably not so much. <laughs> I, I would like to see the, the Doctor and Donna running around in the second episode and then realizing that they need Rose to help them fix whatever is going wrong in the third episode. And that's why she makes toys. She's got to fix the broken toys. Her mm. toys go to battle with the toy makers army and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a whole thing. <laughs> oh, I found a connection. I'm, I'm, I'm still riffing on this Abu Dhabi thing. <laughs> this, I planted the seed. Just hold it. Just hold it. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to tease this out. Something Listener, Donna's- the thinking face has turned on. <laughs> so Donna was talking about the fact that when she said, oh, maybe that woman in, in Abu Dhabi love him. She, she loves all those gonks or something mm-hmm. like that, right? Right. A it was gonk, gonks, yeah. Mm-hmm. A gonk is a term referring to a 1960s toy. It's like this little, um, they're just kind of a over-exaggerated, uh, like a potato head thing, but they usually had very, very... Um, uh, uh, over overemphasized faces and tiny little limbs. So very kind of potato head, but stuffed. That was a particular name for those types of toys that was used by Susan Foreman. Canonically. Hmm. Oh, buddy. Yeah. Okay. Right, oh, Uh-oh. geez. Now you Are have set the expectation. The th- oh. They, you know, I mean, if anyone is going to recognize these things for what they really are and starts buying them all online... Mm-hmm. Oh man! Do we oh. know if the Celestial Toymaker episodes are Earthside or elsewise, or not yet? From we what we know. saw from trailers, they you know this was this seemed Earth based. Yeah. Okay. But but who knows? So. We'll get there when we get there. Exactly. In uh, in one week's time. We will be returning to talk about the wild blue yonder. So, yeah, this is the weird one. The teaser we saw mm. makes no sense. Uh, yeah. like none whatsoever. None. Which is great because uh, there's nothing. There's Ju- Julia approved. Nothing you can tease out of that. <laughs> I actually haven't watched it because I only have a week, so I can avoid spoilers that long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I just used my close outline. <laughs> just kidding <laughs> well this has been episode 508 of gallifrey public radio until next time this is jay saying what could possibly go wrong oh my god i did it again <laughs> and this is Kier saying 166 million pounds <laughs> And this is Julie saying, she shouldn't have gone in there. I said it. Didn't I say it? (laughs) We'll see you next time. Allons-y. Cheers. Cheers.
Thanks for joining us for another episode of Gallifrey Public Radio. Want to keep the conversation going? You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or just send us a good old-fashioned email to feedback at gallifreypublicradio.com. You can also give us a phone call at 754-225-5477. That's 754-CALL-GPR, and you may hear your voice on a future episode of the show. Everything's got to end sometime, otherwise nothing would ever get started. Join us next week for a brand new episode. Jacob Hansen. Gallifrey Public Radio is copyright 2023. We'll see you next time.